0: Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. I'm Heather Stark, your host. We've been doing this show for several years now. One time, about three years ago, I had a guest on the show who was a family court judge from Denver, and she had some interesting perspectives, some of which surprised me, um, and it was just a, a very enlightening show, although I must say, ultimately, a little disappointing, too. I'm really Privileged right now to have another family court judge with me, Judge Eugene Hyman. Welcome, Judge Hyman.
1: Uh, good afternoon.
0: <laughs> Thank you for for being with us. I'm going to give our audience a little bit of an introduction to you. It's not a, a comprehensive one, but you served for 20 years on the Superior Court in the criminal, family, juvenile, and probate divisions of the court, and the juvenile domestic and family violence court began in 1999. Probably the first such court in the U.S., and it received the United Nations Public Service Award in 2008. You also have an extensive experience teaching all around the world. You've been teaching domestic violence-related subjects in Canada, Australia, Germany, New Zealand, and, of course, in the United States. So that's an impressive background. Tell me briefly about your background. How did you become a judge? How did you get involved with domestic violence and the family courts? Uh, Thank you.
1: I um, always wanted to be a lawyer, and then after graduating from uh, college, um, I didn't get into law school initially, so there was something I needed to do while I was waiting, so I became a police officer in the city of Santa Clara, and I was there for almost five years, and subsequently I got into uh, law school, attended law school part-time, And um, after becoming a member of the bar, I practiced criminal defense for about a year, year and a half. Then I did workers' compensation. And um, while I was involved uh, with the um, practice, local practice, I became very active with the county bar. And... um, As a result of uh, my uh, working with them and with other groups, I became uh, interested in becoming a judge, applied for a a judgeship. And in uh, December of 1990, I was appointed to the municipal court. And after uh, six years on the municipal court, I decided to run for an open seat on the superior court. And fortunately, I won that seat. And then I I went to the Superior Court, where I subsequently uh, sat until my retirement in um, March of uh, uh, 2011. I've been involved in uh, domestic violence prevention for almost 30 years. And I became interested in um, prevention when I had a relationship with a survivor of domestic violence and she gave me a perspective that I had never had before because prior to that, Mm -hmm. I had read about it and had a basic understanding, but she was able to communicate to me what it was like to actually be a survivor of domestic violence, and as a result of that, I became very involved in domestic violence prevention, uh, first at the municipal court and secondly in the superior court, and even after my retirement, I continued to uh, teach it um, and am actively involved in various kinds of activities to try and do a better job of intervening and helping uh, not only survivors but also their children. And that's what I've been doing for uh, almost 30 years.
0: Well, I, th- I want to ask you a lot of questions about the family court and the family court process, but I also want to focus on this DV prevention so often when we're talking about domestic violence or intimate partner violence or whatever term you want to use in these days, we're, we're talking about kind of picking up the pieces and helping survivors. We don't hear a lot about prevention programs. We hear about uh, perpetrators being sent to, to programs that, you know, quite honestly, marginally successful. Um, but we don't hear a lot about prevention so can we talk about that a little bit? Why prevention? What does prevention involve? Why, is, why don't we hear about it more, more frequently and uh, on actual domestic violence prevention?
1: Sure. Uh, <clears throat> prevention is bringing it to the schools. Uh, so um, it would be predominantly at the high school level, although I have heard of some programs that begin in middle school, And they talk about what healthy relationships look like. And then they talk about what to do if you're in an unhealthy relationship. Because there's been studies that indicate that a large population of women become involved with their abuser at early ages, everything from 12, 13 on up. And a very high percentage of those 12 and 13 and 14-year-olds can ultimately become in long-term relationships uh, with men who not only batter them, but a percentage of them actually murder them. So it's kind of like the necessity, the importance of teaching what a healthy relationship looks like, because most of us uh, learn about relationships from our parents. And if you mm-hmm. are uh, in, a, in a relationship where there is domestic violence, then if you're the male, your model is seeing your, your father or, or your mother's boyfriend in the event of divorce abusing your mother, and you begin to normalize that. And if you're a, a young woman, a girl, you see maybe your mother being abused and you just sort of say, well, gee, I guess that's sort of the way it is. You know, they have all the control. You do what they want. You don't get beaten. You don't do what they want. They get upset. They do beat you. So it's like, you know, what does a healthy relationship look like? And most people have no idea what a healthy relationship looks like. We we react to a certain extent based upon what we observed with respect to our own parents. The other thing you know, is if I could interrupt to,
0: you just if I could interrupt you just briefly yeah. there. Um, that's that's a very interesting perspective because I'm uh, you know I'm, I I always say I'm older than dirt and in my era we grew up on Lucille Ball reruns and even uh, oh who was the one right. Jackie Gleason you know to the Moon Alice and you know I, and and we grew up watching reruns of all these TV shows and then when I was um, a little older. Then they brought out the the Cosby family and all that other stuff. So I think that a lot of the media that older women were exposed to definitely modeled a certain level of dysfunction. Um, I knew I hated uh, watching I Love Lucy because she was always cre- – I mean, she although she ostensibly was not abused, she was always coming up with these – schemes, these little girl, these little kids' schemes to hide things from hubby, who was clearly the one in control and in charge if she had to hide things from him. And, you know, and the, those were the kinds of models that I had. But I also grew up in a very dysfunctional home. And so when I saw things like the Cosby family I, or, you know, and I thought, wow, this must be normal. Well, you know, time has proven, you know, about the actors and that. But the 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 show itself, we it was kind of modeled as, okay, this is a healthy family. This is normal. But my children still laugh at me because I would often say as they were growing up, no, normal people don't do this. You know, (laughs) normal people do this. Let's do it this way because this is the way normal people do it. And I was just grabbing at what I was, I I was trying to construct normalcy um, because I didn't have that model. And so that's a very interesting, you know, what you're describing. It, 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 I think it's very common. Um, and so can you elaborate a little bit on, you know, what a curriculum is for healthy relationships?
1: Well, it, it, it talks about um, mutual respect. It talks about uh, the freedom to say no and what, uh, and what consent and no mean. And let's face it, it's very difficult to talk about sexual relationships in general, let alone when it's young people, and especially when you've got parents that might be concerned that if you're talking about sex, then somehow you might be encouraging it. And so you have to be um, respectful with respect to people's different um, feelings about the topic and about the curriculum. So it isn't in, <clears throat> excuse me, it isn't in as many schools as I would like. Um, and I my feeling is, is that either, either we talk about it, uh, in which case we have an opportunity to prevent a lot of uh, violence and a lot of pregnancy, or we can just continue to bury our heads in the sand, in which case you're going to uh, have more Um, dysfunction uh, and the potential for violence uh, than you might otherwise if you took a chance. So, but it isn't isn't just uh, prevention in the sense of having healthy relationship classes. It's also prevention in the sense of having uh, good uh, interventions for survivors of domestic violence, including survivors of juvenile domestic violence, as well as survivors of adult domestic violence, because a lot of survivors, unfortunately, get involved in subsequent domestic violence situations. So again, they don't know how to navigate, how to stay safe, how to say no, so they don't know what a healthy relationship looks like. So these programs, whether it be juvenile, or whether it be adult, they help to be supportive in terms of um, helping them go forward. It's important that we have good intervention programs for survivors of domestic violence, both adult and juvenile, because a lot of them get into subsequent abusive relationships. So they need to, to be assisted voluntarily. In other words, no one enforces any programs on, uh, on survivors. Uh, and assist them in terms of what a healthy relationship looks like and how they can navigate a healthy relationship. And then it's also important in part of the domestic violence intervention programs, um, battering intervention programs for perpetrators, part of um, the responsibility of the program is to also teach, uh, to have um, men have the ability to be more egalitarian, uh, less controlling, and and uh non-abusive i mean obviously violence is unacceptable uh, i have found that a lot of men learn how to be non-violent but what is more difficult to learn is how to be less uh controlling and less uh less abusive in non-violent ways so these programs also teach uh teach that and unfortunately this is very very difficult behavior to correct it isn't uh, uh, the success rates are pretty low for these kinds of programs, which is even more of a reason to help women understand options so that they can leave abusive relationships safely and um, move on with their, with their lives.
0: Well, and you bring up an interesting point with the controlling behavior because a lot of times, I th- I think actually over the last 30 years or so, we've done as a society a pretty good job. Of making uh, defining domestic violence as physical abuse, broken bones, black eyes, and frowning upon that behavior, Um, but we have done an abysmal job of defining abuse as anything other than black eyes and broken bones. And as you have just pointed out, that controlling behavior. The studies show that many women, you know, if given an option of, of of experiencing the physical violence or the controlling behavior again, they will go for the, the physical violence because broken bones heal, heal, black eyes heal. But what is happening to your, your brain and your personality and, you know, uh, with that controlling and abusive behavior, that's not so easily repaired often. Um, so it's interesting to me that you, that you mentioned the controlling behavior behavior um, Do you you agree with my assessment? Do you think we've done a pretty good job about the physical stuff, but not so much about the controlling behavior?
1: Well, we've done a good job in terms of understanding the physical. Um, Unfortunately, um, we haven't stopped by any means the physical. Women are still being murdered at a, a shocking rate, and women are still being hurt in their children. Well, what we've discovered with research is not only are abusive men abusing women physically and psychologically, but they're abusing their children physically, psychologically, and sexually. Not all of them, but, I mean, um, no. so that's one way of controlling the woman is to abuse the child and say, hey, look, you, you leave. I'm going to get custody of the child, and I'm going to continue to abuse the child or the animal or some other uh, object of importance, and and that forces a lot of women to stay. So the other problem is in terms of getting women legal assistance to assist them in leaving. And unfortunately, um, you have the right to an attorney if you're in the criminal system and you can't afford one. Um, We don't have uh, an equivalent of a public defender system for people in family court, and that's what we uh, also need. Uh, Because seventy percent of um, people, both men and women—not just women—seventy percent of people in the family uh, system are self-represented, and uh, somehow they get through it. But if that's one thing, if you and your partner are, you know, just not getting along and want to get divorced, you might disagree about certain things, but. It really becomes critical when a woman is being abused and she's getting a divorce. Um, to do that by yourself is just um, incredibly difficult, especially when you're talking about child custody. So if we really yeah. wanted to make a difference, we would have some kind of a system uh, for those that meet um, certain economic thresholds to have court-appointed family lawyers.
0: So probably, that's interesting, Uh, uh, you know, obviously I'm all in favor of that because so many women uh, really get the short end of the stick because they are trying to represent themselves because they don't have the resources. However, it's interesting that you you talk about that because just because, you know, when when you're talking about establishing financial levels, criteria, income levels presumably, of who could qualify for uh, assistance, there's a small segment of people, well, maybe not so small, of, of women who are married to very wealthy men. And they are blocked out of all sorts of uh, uh, resources that they could use because their income level is too high. The problem is is that a lot of those women who are being abused are cut out of control of the income.
1: Absolutely. So just
0: because he Absolutely. is wealthy doesn't mean she is. And I can name you Absolutely. one as a woman who tried to apply for food stamps or Medicaid for their children and no, you didn't qualify, you don't qualify. But meanwhile, they have nothing. It's the husband right. who has it. And uh, so cool. I, I kind of worry a little bit when we talk about um, income criteria uh, for things like that, because, you know, if it, it, quite honestly, it's those wealthy women whose husbands will hire, you know, a, a, a legal team, Uh, to basically crush them and so uh, that's just something I'm throwing out there you know (laughs) let's let's not forget the poor rich women because they're not really rich apparently. Oh no absolutely that's another way to control that's
1: another way of control
0: yes and in talking about the ways to control I'm going to swing us a little bit back to the family courts and how they operate because of course You know, if she's no longer living with you, what you can do to control her is to do whatever you can to the kids, especially going for custody. And we have seen various studies, probably the most significant of which is Joan Myers' study that came out last year. Yes, yes. Yeah, about the likelihood, the overwhelming likelihood that an abuser will get custody of those children Whether he has ever been a a custodian before, whether he has ever had any real deep involvement with the children, whether the mother has been an exemplary uh, 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 child protector, it doesn't matter. If those abusers want custody, the courts are giving it to them. Could you talk a little bit about that, why that's happening?
1: Well, I, I really think, In a lot of cases, not all cases, I mean, there are many excellent family law judges. And then there are many judges that aren't excellent, just like there are many good lawyers, many bad lawyers, many good police officers. Some police officers aren't. Many good prosecutors, some that aren't. Many good public defenders, some that aren't. So you've got good ones and some that aren't as good. I mean, that's everywhere. But I really think uh, there's an implicit bias problem. And when people talk about implicit bias, usually they're talking about race, religion, things of that uh, nature. I also think there's an implicit bias with respect to women who are experiencing abuse, whether it be domestic violence abuse, sexual assault, I mean, all kinds of abuse. And I think the way the implicit bias plays out is that there's this sense that, gee, why does she stay if it's so bad? And if you continue to stay, somehow it isn't that bad. And, I mean, there's been study after study in terms of why women stay, and there's very good reasons why women stay. Um, Sometimes they're concerned about the abuse getting worse. Sometimes they're worried about their children or their pets. Sometimes they don't have education, can't speak English, and the, the batter is the sole support. I mean, there's at least 50 reasons. Uh, that if we had the time I could go over in terms of why women stay. So they stay for very good reasons. But there's a prejudice uh, against them. There's a whole bunch of lawyers that I know that uh, if a woman tells them a story of abuse, their theory is not to mention it. They feel that there's a prejudice with respect to evaluators in the court, um, with respect to women that claim abuse, and it's only going to be worse for them in terms of outcome. And they recommend that women not, uh, not raise those issues. That I don't think that's good advice, but I've heard that that's the advice that some uh, lawyers are giving. Um, <clears throat> I feel that if there's any way to stay out of the court system, this is whether there's domestic violence or not. I mean, this isn't limited to just domestic violence. If there's any way to avoid going to court, I would recommend that you do that. I would recommend that you get a mediator. Um, A mediator is a person who is, uh, uh, like a judge, fair, neutral, and impartial. This person specializes in all aspects of family law, or they could specialize in certain aspects of family law, like child custody, um, like domestic violence issues, and this person would help uh, both of the parties uh, resolve their issues without going to full-blown litigation. The only problem with it is it requires two people who are willing to do that. And a lot of batterers uh, are not willing to do that because they feel that they won't be able to control uh, the outcome as well as if they're able to uh, go to court. The other nice thing about mediation is you can select, you get to choose your mediator. If you're going in front of a judge, you don't get to choose your judge. Your judge comes off of a a list, you file your petition um, in uh, family uh, family court, uh, family relations court, whatever it's called in your jurisdiction, and then you ultimately are assigned a judge. And that person might be good or that person might not be. Whereas if you're going into mediation or you're agreeing upon an evaluator, you're having some say over who that person is. And if you don't want to go to that person, you say, no, I'm not interested in going to that person. Whereas if you're assigned a judge, you have no choice. That judge is yours, and, and you can't do anything about it. And that person may not be a good fit for your particular case.
0: I'm going to play devil's advocate here, Judge Hyman. When you're talking about an, a mediator and the the uh, being able to choose, et cetera, I have seen and heard of a lot of cases where the mediator is just one more form of bullying that the perpetrator can use. Oh, no, I won't take that mediator. No, I won't agree to that mediator. No, I won't agree to that one. Uh, you know, it, it, it can become another source of um, a, abuse uh, to select that just as, you know, uh, uh, if you're selecting a, a, Do you know what I'm saying?
1: Oh, I don't disagree with you. Um, yeah. I think the most difficult. I think the most difficult cases are domestic violence cases uh, because the uh, the abusive partner and controlling partner is going to make resolution uh, difficult. You know that kind of case is probably going to wind up in front of a judge uh, more than in front of a mediator for the reasons that you just discussed. So no, I agree. Um, It it depends upon whether you're represented or unrepresented. And it depends upon the attorney that's uh, representing you because there are attorneys that specialize in representing batterers and they help perpetrate, they perpetrate, help perpetrate the abuse. So um, in which case then what you need is a strong judge who's going to, you know, keep it on an even keel and keep it moving forward. And some judges are better at that than others.
0: Well, I, I mean, mean I, like I
1: – go ahead.
0: Oh, I was just going to uh, say, I when mean, it I've, comes to the judges, what I have seen is that obviously there are some good judges, uh, well-educated judges. that are. But overwhelmingly, what I've seen is that these abusers get away with a lot an awful lot, and it's just, well, we'll come back and visit this in 30 days, or, well, you have 30 days to fix this, and then you go back in 30 days. It's not fixed, but they did a little something, so, okay, we'll give them another 30 days. But what I have seen, and I find it kind of amusing, is that if the judge gives an order, or it it seems like the judges come down hard on the perpetrators once the perpetrators do some contrary to the judge, not necessarily contrary to the victim. I'm not sure if I'm articulating that very well, but are, do you understand what I'm yes. saying?
1: I do, I do. Is, is
0: and, that just basic yeah. human nature, or or is that something that's endemic in the system, or?
1: Well, I, I think based upon my experience um, with domestic violence is that you're correct, you need judges that are not going to give a lot of slack now you always get a lot more slack if you're self-represented than if you have an attorney because if you have an attorney the judge is going to expect the attorney to do things you know correctly and but you need a, and especially in domestic violence situations you need a strong judge who doesn't let uh the parties get away with anything and keeps them uh to the fire And, uh, but on the other hand, if you're self represented and if you don't get it done correctly, as long as you're trying, you know, you're right. There's going to be allowances uh, for continuances, and that's a problem, Uh, which is why I advocate um, for some kind of a system that's based upon income to assist parties in moving their cases forward, because it is so difficult doing it yourself. It, I mean, it's, no. just, it's just really, I mean, it's difficult if, if, if you're educated. It's difficult if you have a lawyer, let alone doing it. I mean, I'm amazed at the people that somehow get through the system that have not had a lawyer along the way. I mean, you know, I, I don't know how they do it.
0: I've met a lot of women who could probably pass the bar exam after having gone through representing themselves, sure. studying, sure. learning, and, you I, know, gathering documents. You know, and I should, you know, that should be a a whole separate uh, thing that I should look into because I know in Washington State, or at least it used to be, maybe they've changed it. You didn't actually have to go to law school to take the bar exam, and so um, that that would be interesting if if people who who self-educated, going through these experiences, could actually pass the bar and, and become attorneys. That would be an interesting. Well, let, this is yeah. where my, my, my brain
1: goes, Judge. <laughs> so, well, it's, it's um, not that easy because you have to be under the supervision of a lawyer or a judge. They have to give you quizzes and tests, and uh, the person who's supervising you has to certify that you've had so many hours of studying. I mean, yeah, you can do it, but it's not easy. It isn't, it isn't like, hey, uh, sign up and take the bar. You have to prove all these other things first. So it's, it's a yeah. four-year deal at least. It's not easy. It's not yeah. easy. Um well
0: I, so we all know and, uh, the t- great attorneys who have taken two or three passes before they could get through that bar exam, so it must oh, be very, very easy. I don't
1: I don't think there's any causal relationship between passing the bar and practicing law. Um I mean this business about that you if you pass the bar you're confident. I don't think necessarily so, but that's another topic <laughs> for another day. Um I, I think <laughs> exactly. that Finding, finding good lawyers at affordable prices is is, is uh, great difficulty. And what a divorce can cost you is just unbelievable. For a divorce where people are basically getting along, I don't see how you can do it for less than 25000 And that's, that's a lot of money. Well,
0: when you're divorcing with one of these controllers, they would rather... Yeah. Spend every dime than allow their that's right. to have have that's right you know that's
1: right, and they're spending money that people have set aside for college and, and everything else i mean it's it's really tragic, and of course, if you live in l a it's much more expensive than in northern california um, it's it, It's prohibitive, and uh, we need to come up with a, with a better way to do this
0: so is anybody working on that in the legal field and coming up with a better way to do this?
1: Well, I, you, you have a movement called collaborative law, and that is uh, working, um, you have collaborative lawyers that work with their clients in terms of preparing them for mediation and not for litigation. This, but this requires uh, people that are willing to set aside their anger, their disappointment, and everything else, and uh, go before an experienced person that explains the law to them and helps them divide things, helps them come up with um, a, a meaningful um, visitation pro- child visitation program. That kind of law isn't going to work with serious batterers because they're just not willing uh, to be serious about it. So, but it, it you know, it, it does work for a lot of people and it's a movement. It truly is a movement because the lawyers that are doing it are not interested in litigating. As a matter of fact, some of them, if, they, if their clients can't settle their cases, they move them on to other lawyers because the, those particular lawyers are not interested in litigation. They're interested in mediating and working working out settlements. That's, how they view their role, and that's how they view a success, and that's how they view happiness. And then you've got those some lawyers that just really enjoy in courtroom and uh, and battling it out and cross examining and and making people cry and everything else. You've got all different kinds of people out there, but there is a movement, and I think that they they are motivated the right way. It's just that. Um, Unfortunately, it requires people that truly want to resolve their case without scorching the earth, and that that doesn't happen every day.
0: No, and it certainly doesn't happen in cases where there's this kind of abuse. So no, um, no, no way. Let's 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 move to the topic of uh, um, guardians ad litem. I, I think what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to ask you questions about all of this. Uh, what I call the, the industry, the divorce industry. I mean, it's not uncommon right. for these consensus divorces to have psychologists, one for him, one for her, psychologists, one for the child. Oh, absolutely. A guardian ad, absolutely. A guardian ad volume, if not, too. Uh, then we have the absolutely. mediator, and then we have the child protectors, and the right. blah, blah, blah. And it just is amazing and astounding the number of people who are, and I'm going to sound crass here, who are getting a cut of it. And you, yes. I'm wondering your opinion of all this. Is all of this really necessary? Is, you know, it, What's a better way to do it? Um, can you comment on that, that kind of ancillary personnel well, that are always involved in these sure. difficult divorces?
1: Well, the best way is if you can agree on experts so that there's only one expert rather than two experts. So you agree that this person will do a custody evaluation, and you each agree that this person is fair and you pretty much are gonna follow um, their suggestions. Um, With respect to guarding ad litem, um, courts usually appoint lawyers for children where there is great difficulty within the family. Sometimes it's uh, domestic violence, sometimes it's substance abuse and other kinds of very, very difficult issues to represent the interests of children in high-conflict divorces. Now, um, we, we call them in California, minors' children, minors' counsel. And depending upon the attorney, they can do an excellent job. So let's say that the parents are unrepresented, and then you have an attorney for the child. Um, the, the attorney for the child or for the children can make recommendations to the court And sometimes that can be very helpful in terms of resolving uh, the case. Unfortunately, um, there's always the depends, there's always the but. It depends upon um, the minors' counsel in terms of how fair they are and um, how much weight the judge gives to the opinion of minors' counsel. It's my position that minors' counsel is just, um, is a conduit for information to the court and the court needs to process it think about it and needs to to do what the court thinks is in the best interest of the children but I think it's wrong to always do what minors counsel recommends I think it's wrong to necessarily always do what the evaluators recommend you know a judge is not a rubber stamp a judge hears evidence applies the facts as the judge determines them to be to the law that is in the state with respect to whatever issue you're deciding whether it be child custody or financial interest or dividing community property or whatever it is <clears throat> experts give opinions and judges make orders sometimes depending upon the judge sometimes judges are more than happy to let others make decisions and I think that's where we get into difficulties. I think judges are there to make hard decisions. They certainly should listen to what experts have to say. But to the extent that they disagree with an expert, then they need to make their own decisions. And sometimes that doesn't happen.
0: I'm going to give you a scenario um, of a situation that I know of um, where a guardian ad litem was selected, uh, she was an attorney. And the parents were each asked to list um, um, resources or or, um, people to recommend, recommendations, I guess, for for their parenting, people who had known and seen them parent. The mother had been a very active parent uh, in the school program. She listed every teacher that the kids had. They all agreed to be um, on her list. She listed the PTA president, she listed some neighbors, and she listed um, the pediatricians. The father listed his rotary buddy and his sister and his mother. The guardian ad litem saw the list and said to the mother, well, he only has three on his list, so you just pick three on your list, and, which the mother did. And then the guardian ad litem wrote um, a, 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 a summary, of a recommendation, that basically it should be 50-50, even though the father had been arrested for domestic violence, even though the father was very, um, a very abusive man. And I have never understood that. Why would the guardian ad litem limit? I mean, wouldn't you, just seeing this list, wouldn't that give you a clue as to the quality of the parenting? And yet the guardian ad litem... Just you know, uh, I, can you comment on that? Is that typical? Uh,
1: it's, very, it's very difficult to. It's very difficult for me to be able to assist your listeners, um, because I just don't know all the information I would need to know to really be able to fully comment. It, it doesn't okay. sound reasonable to me. It doesn't sound reasonable to me, but in, for me to really be helpful, I need to know a lot more information. Is that something yeah. that Garden Edlitzens or Miner's Council are always doing? I, I can't. That wasn't my experience, um, but it could be in some in some jurisdictions, counties, whatever. That might be. I don't know. I mean, it, it's just very difficult to be able to assess something like that.
0: Okay, uh, and that's fair. Uh, that's fair. I, I've just always been puzzled by that because I I thought, wow, you know. Um, the other um, question that I have in, in these additional people, these additional, um, the the whole psychologist issue, um, and you're talking right. to a woman who has spent the last 10 years working on a Ph.D. in psychology, so I, I have a little bit of knowledge of what I'm speaking with, and so often the psychologist evaluations are required either by the court or by the opposing parties, and those psychological evaluations consist of standard personality tests or, um, you know, there is no test to determine whether you're an abuser. Um, So psychologists rely on standardized tests, Mm. which don't necessarily tell you a thing about psychology or about uh, abuse. And yet the courts seem to think that that's suitable. And many courts will just take psychological recommendations I, what is your experience with the whole psychologist and, uh, d- in these divorce uh, cases? Well, I mean, you've got
1: two, two types of evaluators. One type is uh, the court's evaluator, and they work for a division of the family court in, in, San, uh, excuse me, in California. They're called family court services, and most of them have masters. A few of them are going to have PhDs and they do um, certain uh, evaluations they don't do extensive they don't have the time to do extensive evaluations but they are court evaluators you still pay for them but at a much lower rate and then there are private evaluators and almost all of them are phds and so they interview uh, as a, that's what I talked about earlier in terms of agreeing upon an evaluator. Otherwise mom gets her evaluator, dad gets his evaluator, and those evaluations can cost anywhere from ten thousand to fifty thousand depending upon you know what's involved and if they testify, if there's depositions, um, you know, it really depends. I mean, it's going to be expensive, how expensive depends. Um, and then if a psychologist, thinks that one parent or the other might have a personality disorder that's important with respect to a parenting plan, then they can go ahead and uh, request testing, and that's going to be another $5,000. So, you know, that depends. So the best thing that you can do is if a couple can agree upon an evaluator. Um, But if it's a high-conflict divorce, if you've got domestic violence in it, that's going to be less likely that the parties are going to be able to agree uh, in terms of one person doing an evaluation. Is there possibility or opportunities for abuse? Absolutely. It's one of the most expensive aspects of a case after the paying of attorney's fees. Are these uh, child uh, evaluations? I mean, it's unbelievable the amount of money that is spent or can be spent. Yeah,
0: which leads me to the conclusion that the one with the least money, the party with the least money, is the one who's going to lose.
1: Um, that, that very a well general. might be. Uh, it, it, it depends upon um, who the evaluator is. It depends upon who the judge is. And it depends upon how the parties present themselves if they have a contested hearing. I, again, you know, I understand um, that I'd like to be helpful to your listeners um, but it's very difficult for me to be able to come to black and white conclusions, um, because right. there are so many factors that, that enter into the decision-making process, uh, that I, I don't feel comfortable saying, yeah, this is, this is always going to be the case because it may not be. I mean, judges are important depending upon, uh, the role they wish to take during a hearing. I mean, if they take charge, um, and, um, they, uh, ask questions, because remember, uh, In most states, I think Texas is an exception, in most states there are no jury trials in family law cases. So that means a judge hears the case, the judge makes a decision, and the judge, if he or she wants to, can actually ask questions. Um, We don't ask questions a lot. We probably ask more questions if the parties don't have lawyers than if the parties do have lawyers, because if they do have lawyers, we don't want to be interfering with how the attorneys are presenting their cases. But if the parties don't have lawyers, then we probably are more inclined, if appropriate, to ask questions, to get information to assist us in terms of making these important decisions. So, um, as I said, you know, in all the divisions of the courts that I was in, family court was the most difficult assignment I had because of a lack of resources, um, because of a lack of attorneys, uh, because of people that are super stressed and super worn out, and um, it is, uh, all you see are just unhappy people, and it's just very, very difficult uh, to be able to assist them. I mean, sometimes you can get a resolution, um, but I I was never one for pushing uh, in the sense of, well, you need to do this, you need to do that. I mean, I felt pretty strongly that People need to be in control of their lives. I mean, I might say to you, hey, if you do this, um, I think the outcome isn't going to be what you're hoping for, but you have the right to go ahead and go forward if you wish to. So what would you like to do? And, you know, then they they make their decision. Um, I, I think that um, taking child custody cases to court um, is the last thing you should do because there's no way well, now, how hard do you try as a judge that you're going to know those children and you're going to know those parents uh, to the extent that you would like to in making these most important decisions? And parents you know, know their situations best, but sometimes a mediator uh, can say to one parent, look, before the divorce, you weren't spending a lot of time with them, and so to 50% of the time just isn't realistic given what was happening before you separated being able to point out in a non-threatening way that this is not in the best interest of the children that you might be able to get more time as you establish a relationship and as you improve upon the relationship and as the children get older then it might make more sense to have additional timeshare at that time but for now this really isn't in their best interest and to be able to explain that in a way that is non-threatening and that makes sense. And for a, um, a parent who is the, um, who's spending the least amount of time prior to separation to understand that and to accept that is um, quite a skill set. And yeah. um, you know, well, those, are the, kind, those but, are the kind of mediators you want.
0: Yeah, but again, we keep coming back to that. These are very contentious things. And if you have a person whose primary objective is to control Um, And that's more important than family relationships or children's health or anything else. You're just hitting your head against a wall. You know, you're just hitting your head against a wall there. I Um, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's pretty tough. Um, Wanted to ask you about um, the – so You had mentioned that in many cases, or often cases, you've heard of attorneys uh, recommending to their clients that they not mention abuse because it might put them in a, you know, uh, that situation of implicit bias that you were talking about. I have heard the same thing about sexual assault of children, um, that yes. parents are in fact being advised to not even mention that. Yes. And I have Correct. to say, I don't, I, have, I, I don't have a study to quote, but um, you know, the anecdotal evidence that I've heard um, makes, it, makes me believe that there is something to this implicit bias if the sexual assault of children is implied or even suggested. Um, you know, is that my imagination, or have you seen that?
1: Well, I haven't seen it, but I've certainly read about it. And um, it's a decision that, you know, an attorney and talking with their uh, client. Um, there are attorneys that believe that bringing up these issues with a judge or bringing up with with an evaluator is going to have a uh, bad outcome uh, because of implicit bias, and I think that is certainly true. To what extent it's a problem, I'm sorry, I don't have any idea, but I certainly okay. acknowledge that it happens, and I certainly acknowledge that it's a concern.
0: Yeah. Okay, um, and then one other question. One of The, the question that I asked um, the other judge that I was fortunate enough to have on, on my show to interview a couple years ago, I said, please explain to me what is going through a judge's mind when she or he is, is on the bench and in front of you are two people, one of whom has documented domestic violence and one of whom does not. What goes through the judge's mind in determining custody? And the response that this judge gave me was, well, you have to understand that you've got one person who is frantic and, you know, uh, uh, at her wit's end, and she just doesn't even have her own life together, let alone that of her children, and then we have the the person who is pretty much calm and control and in charge, and he has his act together. So, and this is a quote, if the domestic violence wasn't that bad, we will give the children to him. Just about fell off my chair. Have you? Her? Well, I guess. Can you comment on that particular um, uh, experience I had well, with the interview? Well, um, well, California
1: and many states have a rebuttable presumption that if, uh, if domestic violence, sexual assault, whatever is proved, then there is a presumption that the other party, that is the perpetrator, the abuser, should not have sole or joint legal custody uh, of, uh, of children and that um, the non-abusive parent uh, would get to make all the important decisions legal and social uh, regarding um, the children in terms of the medical the religious their social they get to make all the decisions this doesn't mean that the batterer can't go to um, uh, to school uh, night it means that he needs to go at a different time when the when the victim won't be present he has the right to talk to the teacher about how his child is doing um, but he has no control over extracurricular activities, medical treatment, any of those kinds of things. And um, if he gets uh, visitation, if he gets visitation, depending upon what he's doing, it might be supervised uh, until he's able to complete some kind of an intervention program and the judge has an idea in terms of whether he can be trusted, in terms of uh, visiting with uh, children, Without being supervised. So these are very, very scary people. Um, And I think that uh, you need to be, you know, you need to be very, very careful when you make orders regarding children that are in homes where there's domestic violence. Because you never know if this person is ultimately going to decide to go ahead and murder the wife. And in a certain percentage of cases, not only do they murder the wife, they also murder the children um on some kind of tortured logic that um since the wife has been murdered um the other parent is going to be going into custody and uh or maybe he's going to be committing suicide in which case the children will be orphans and they're better off dead than being orphans so Mm -hmm. this is part of it as well domestic violence perpetrators they can make change, but it's very, very difficult. These are learned behaviors that have been going on for some time. And um, I, I think it's a, it's a serious mistake to conclude that by completing any kind of a program uh, that somehow that means they're changed. What, what it means in my view is that they've been exposed to ideas, but if they're serious about changing their behavior, uh, long-term or permanently, that means that they have to continue to go to these programs even when they're no longer required to go to programs um, by order of a court or, or something like that. It's like, you know, to give you an example, if you have a substance abuse issue, every person who is dealt with a substance abuse issue and is going to AA or NA, understands that they're going to have to go to the, for these programs for the rest of their life. There's absolutely no, no mistake about it. But batterers somehow think I've completed the program that was 20, 25 weeks, California, 52 weeks, and I'm cured. And nothing could be, um, nothing could be wrong uh, from that, um, that thought. I mean, if, you know, What is the difference between a domestic batter and a hell's angel? Uh, The difference is that a domestic batter is probably more charming. They're both equally potentially violent. It's just that we acknowledge the potential violence of a motorcycle gang member. And we don't necessarily always acknowledge the violence of of, of a domestic violence perpetrator. A domestic violence perpetrator is capable of murder. If the, if the, perpetrator has uh, strangled uh, his wife or his partner she's at 750 percent risk of being killed by that partner down the road that's the that's the association so these are very scary people there's no such thing as a um, as a safe batterer um, people that are in a program and continue to do the program to check in to check their controlling behavior, are uh, much better off in terms of having healthy uh, relationships. But this is something they had constantly have to work at. They didn't become a batter overnight, and you don't become uh, a non batter overnight. You're used to dealing with um, with uh, situations in a violent way, and I yeah. don't care whether you're a hell angel or whether you're a domestic batter. You're, you're a scary person, and those are difficult behaviors to change. Yeah.
0: You've summed that up very, very well, I think. Thank you very much, Judge. Um, question for you, a real brief question, because I'm looking at the clock going, oh, no, our, our time, we're coming to an end here. Um, when you were on the bench, how many were you, did you often deal with these cases? How What percentage of the cases that you dealt with involved this kind of, this, uh, the abuse like we've been talking about? Is it? 5%, 40%, Again, you give me oh, a rough wow. estimate?
1: Um, I'd say between 20 and 25%. Because, um, you know, uh, one in four women have had violence in their lives. And um, so I think that's uh, reasonable to say that with respect to domestic violence cases, uh, declaring it might be a little bit lower, so it might be closer to 20% than 25%, but somewhere between 20 and
0: 25% hmm.
1: would, be yeah. my be- would be my best guess. I'm sure there's research, and I, I just can't
0: remember it off the yeah, top of my is. head. There is. I just wondered if from your personal experience. Um, and Oh, yeah. Those- oh, it's, it's tons of it. Yeah, you know, I, I have about fifty other questions, but I we're we're out of time. I'm not going to be able to ask them. Um, one of the things that I always try to ask our our guests is, uh, you know, I clearly had my my set of questions. Was there something that you want to talk about briefly that I didn't ask you about?
1: Uh, yes, and that, that would that would be that it's extremely important that survivors of domestic violence. Um, uh, contact advocates in their communities, because the advocates can assist them, uh, in the safety, can assist them in getting uh, public benefits to which they're entitled and can assist them in terms of finding, uh, lower cost options with respect to divorce and can give them advice with respect to, or some, some advice with respect to the, uh, the process uh, and, and the community in which they're located. So I'm a big believer. Contact the um, the local advocates, the domestic violence shelters. They have all kinds of programs. Uh, they're very understanding. Please don't be embarrassed. Please contact them, and they're going to uh, provide uh, great resources in terms of keeping you safe, and also to the extent that they that they can, helping you with resources uh, to keep food on the table. That that that's a biggie, I think.
0: I think that that's very good advice, and that's very good advice for us to, to close on. Uh, uh, Judge, I am so grateful for you coming on the show. I really appreciate your knowledge. I, I, I know I asked you some questions that were probably not questions that you were expecting, and um, but I do appreciate your, your um, willingness to share your experience and to share your knowledge about domestic violence. I would hope that at some point in the future you would be willing to come back because I still have those 50 questions. I,
1: <laughs> I'd be happy to. I'd be happy to. Thank you for the, thank you for the opportunity to spend uh, quality time with you talking about something that's extremely important to me and I know extremely important to you.
0: Well, thank you, Judge Hyman. Thank you so much, and thank you for listening to Three Women, Three Ways.